You're listening to Your Credit Today with your host, Angela setters Vassard, sponsored by Conquer Credit Management. Well, good afternoon, uh, good evening, good morning. This is A to the N to the G. You're listening to Your Credit Today. And I have a super D-duper. Does anyone remember Barney? Oh my gosh. I know that first and foremost, my guest that's going to be on the show, that was one of her favorites because she told me (laughs) when she was little. And it was actually my son's favorite, Barney. But we have a super D-duper guest on my show today. And her name is Samantha Headley. Well, good Good afternoon, Miss Headley. Hello. <laughs> uh, you don't sound too excited. You didn't I'm, like that intro about Barney? I did. It was my favorite. I had all the VHSs, but I'm very nervous. This is my first podcast ever. So. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. What not a great opportunity then to practice with me. Yes, I agree. So some of you, just so you know, um, I have known Samantha since she was a wee pup. And um, (laughs) when I mean a wee pup, like how old were you? 16? 15? Uh, Yeah, 15, 16. Yeah. And she was an amazing basketball player, much like my son. Some of you guys see on social media, all the posts that I post about my son in basketball. Well, Samantha is also a basketball freak. But more than that, she is my wing woman. She is my partner in crime. She is the one that I depend on, my rock in business. And I thought that it would be awesome to bring her on to talk about some issues that we're having in uh, the student loan world issues. What I mean by that is how we're getting over certain issues that happen in the student loan world. But more than that, just bring her on. And this won't be the first time, guys, even though she said she's nervous because this is her first podcast. This will not be the last time that she'll be on a podcast. So look for her. She will be on these quite frequently. But Samantha, before we get into talking about student loans, let's just talk a little bit about you and what you love about working in in the credit restoration management business, what what do you find joy in doing as far as um, the business that we are in? Well, I have to say that the the biggest part I find joy in is really helping our clients and probably sounds rehearsed or corny, but it really does give me a lot of joy to have very uh, personable conversations with our clients about their goals and things that have happened to them and reassure them that they're you know, not one in a million. They're very common. There are situations that happen to people. People are not well educated about credit um, for generation and generation. So it's not their fault, their parents' fault, or even their parents' parents' fault. It's just how the world is. And I like being a source of knowledge to help them feel re-encouraged and to also then be able to pass down the knowledge that they learn from us to the generations after them. The big Wow, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And tell me, tell me this, what are some of the areas that you, you find yourself scratching your head about uh, the world of credit? Like we were having a great conversation this morning, but you know, what, what do you find sometimes when you are faced with a situation with one of our clients and you're just kind of scratching your head? What, what goes through your mind? 
I I feel almost hopeless for them sometimes. Um, I tell you all the time, I don't believe that there is any one situation that is the same. So I think that anything is possible at any time. I think the, the nice thing about credit is that even though you might have got a no five months ago, it doesn't mean that you're going to get a no today. And it's really just about persistence yeah. and, and really staying on them and being creative and the the part that we get to be is not really emotional in a sense of we don't have an emotional connection to the outcome. So we get to come from it, you know, clear headed and just with the win mindset. And I think that the biggest disservice that credit really does to um, clients is that credit is supposed to be about relationships and behavior patterns. But for me personally, something that I did, you know, five years ago when I was 22 doesn't represent the person that I am at 27. So why should a bad decision or a bad situation that I made a few years ago be hindering my ability to buy a house now or to buy a car or to do even just open up a credit card? Um, and things like that. So I think that the worst disservice that credit does is that it's not really about relationships because if it was about relationships, then it would be about honoring that relationship where people have cards for 30, 40 years or have had the same mortgage for 15 years and never made a late payment, but their escrow went one day late and they were advised by their realtors and brokers not to pay that payment because their escrow would close and cover it. But yet their escrow went one day later and now they have a 30 day late payment that the bank won't remove. Like that just doesn't make any sense when they've made a 15 year payment history of on time, perfect payments. And now they're being hindered for the next seven years over a one day escrow, not closing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, those are the types of things that really make you scratch your head and wonder, you know, where's the justice in our system? You know, that's what a lot of people are even talking about right now. But um, yeah, those are the things that are, you know, pretty frustrating, but I love what you said which is, um, you know, something that we've always, I mean, it's one of our core values as a business, as a company is the uh, persistence principle. We talk about the persistence principle all the time and that, you know, it's not a, a, a matter of no or meaning never. It just means not right now. And sometimes you got to dig your heels in. And, you know, really, that's why people hire companies like us out there, because, you know, it's really easy to get defeated or hopeless, which was the word that you used um, when you are working with a creditor that you've, you know, paid thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest to over a period of time of a relationship. And like you said, something, you know, wacky happens or you have, you know, someone working for you like a bookkeeper or something like that, that unfortunately makes a mistake. You know, there's absolutely no room for error in the system, in the system, which absolutely does not make any sense. And what you and I were talking about today is that, you know, the act that protects us supposedly as consumers is called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But there is absolutely nothing fair about it when it comes to consumers. The only fair practice that they're using is to the other side, which is the banking world. And what we're trying to do as a company is come in with, like you said, solutions, um, strategies, things that we can do to think outside of the box to have these particular banks, financial institution, um, credit institutions make decisions that they ultimately wouldn't typically or normally make. So I love everything that you said. Now, 
Today, I wanted you to come on the show because you and I have been talking a lot back and forth um, for actually many years now about student loans. And um, what I thought would be really great is to bring you on and for us to you know, collaborate together and help our clients and our fans out there, our guests, know a little bit more about what's going on in the student loan world. And um, I want to start off by, you know, telling you that, um, you know, you and I talked about uh, what we were going to, the topics we were going to discuss in the, in this show, but I'd like you to kind of go over or give us an overview of what you, what you wanted to address in this show. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I, well, I first want to say, I think that, you know, I've talked to you so much over the last couple of years about student loans and it's really become my passion project. I don't have student loans and I consider myself lucky, uh, you know, for that. However, I've had to have a couple tough conversations where I've had to tell clients how much they owe on their student loans and they're not aware. And it kind of at first was just shocking to me. How can you not know, you know, how much money that you owe? But if you're not really looking and you're only thinking about what you borrowed and not what but you've you know, gained an interest and you don't realize how fast the loans are gaining interest or you're encouraged to defer them while you're looking for work or while you're in school and you're encouraged to do all of these things when you're not really realizing the financial impact to yourself um, at such a young age or even, you know, I've had a client of ours, he went back to school in his 40s and he still didn't know and he's now learning that he owes triple of what he took out just a few years ago. So it's really because- hey, Why was that? Was that because of penalties and interest that he had racked up because he continued to put it on deferment and which a lot of people do because they think that's best practices and they have no idea that the interest is continuing to accrue? Yeah, exactly. He went back to school in 08 and took out some loans to do that, um, ended up um, you know, stopping around 2012, ended up going into a, a field that didn't even require him to have a degree. And he's very successful at it. So that's very good. But he only he borrowed 40,000 in 2008. And right now in 2020, he owes over 120,000. So in he's been deferring it this whole time, he's never made a single payment um, to them, but he's been encouraged to do this. That's what's that's what's so mind-boggling to me. Even when we're making these creditor calls on these student loans, they're encouraging you to defer them. They're encouraging you to, you know, your schools are, your family is, because they're like, okay, well, you can't afford it, just defer it. But you receive so so much penalties and interest that even if you were to make $100 a month payment or refi the loans when you get out of school, there's so many different options that we're going to talk about. And I think that's why I was, you know, nervous to have this conversation because it does take a lot of research and you hear so many different things. But my biggest thing is just do your research and ask your questions and parents don't let your kids start school and take out these student loans before you sit down and have a conversation with them about what it does. Because I know that um, a couple of my friends went to school on full ride athletic scholarships. And then obviously, you know, whenever you're an athlete, you can't work or anything. So you take out these student loans to have money to be able to do things with your friends and things like that. And they're you're you're just gone. So your parents aren't looking over your back because you're 18 now in if they had had that conversation with you maybe before you left, there's a chance you wouldn't have made that decision and maybe made a different decision to, you know, reach out for help or look through grants and other ways to get free money versus money that you have to pay back. 
So well, yeah. And the other part about that is, is that um, unfortunately, when you are taking out a loan, um, specifically a student loan, no one on the other end is explaining to you what this actually means. They're not explaining to you what compound interest is. They're not explaining to you that, you know, if you put off making payments to this, that the interest is going to grow so rapidly that you borrowing $20,000 today could mean $80,000 in the future. By the time you And that's just wrong. Yeah, just by the time you graduate, yeah. imagine graduating, you're what, you're young, you know nothing, you bit, went away to school and you learned, edu- you know, books and education, but never was there that class that taught you about your credit or your finances or anything like that. So you come out of college and now you have $80,000 of debt and you can't even buy a house or anything until you have those things paid off because you're you're held prisoner because there's no way you can prove that you make enough income right out of college to sustain $80,000 of debt in a new mortgage and a car loan and credit cards and things like that. And that's why I think it's so important that you ask questions and you become as educated as possible and parents become as educated as possible as their kids are starting to go off to school. And, you know, even you guys getting the parent loans, it's so important to read and ask questions because I was reading an article um, on the student aid gov and the frequently asked questions and apparently they they have student aid packages which don't include you know just student loan financing but also free money so then my question is is there a discernment a clear discernment between what's free and what isn't free that people can understand about grants versus you know student loans and sometimes i feel like there isn't a real clear line about what you have to pay back and what you don't have to pay back and about how you have to pay it back because some student loans don't even allow you to make payments while you're in school or you receive a penalty right which is wrong, in my opinion, because if you have a job or if you have parents that want to start making payments so that you're not accruing interest while you're in school, that should be allowed 100 percent. 100 percent. I think so, because, you know, so many parents want to do what they can, but maybe they can't afford to shell out forty thousand dollars for you to go to your first school. But that doesn't mean that they don't want to help you and put money away or aside for you to pay on your student loans. But even if they put that money aside and you put this money and you save the forty thousand dollars for the you know, four years that you're there and you get out and you learn that you owe 80, like you just feel defeated and it's not fair. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Yes. So, um, there are different types of loans that are out there. Um, we, we kind of have it on our topics. We're talking about private, federal, federal subsidized or unsubsidized loans. Hey, I'm mm-hmm. getting tongue tied. And, um, you know, we want to talk about like the options for repayment and when you should actually start making payments, um, loan forgiveness. And you kind of put here that it's not for everyone, forbearance versus deferment, um, consolidation versus refi, um, rehabilitation, uh, all of these different topics that we want to talk about. And one thing that I think that's going to be really important is that we're going to split these up into a couple of shows because I think there's so much to cover cover. And it's such important content. It's such important information for people to know and to discover, you know, what their options are. So um, what I'd like to kind of start with 
is I'd like to start with the biggest questions that we get all of the time, which are the forbearance versus deferment. Let's talk about that first. Okay, I think that's so important to understand too, because the first thing is that forbearance and deferment, I just learned the other day from Angela, don't aren't the same per loan. So forbearance and deferment can mean something different for mortgages than it can mean for student loans. So it's really important to educate yourself because when you're calling, you can be offered both. So forbearance is something that allows you to stop making your loan payments or even have them uh, at a reduced cost, like maybe you make a certain amount of your payment over a period for up to 12 months, and then you're still accruing interest at the same time. So forbearance is only up to 12 months for the life of the loan. So you can maybe, you know, put it in forbearance for three months and then start making your payments again and all of, you know, your catch up on all your payments, or maybe you put it in forbearance for 12 months um, and then you use the entire time. So if you don't use the entire time, entire 12 months, I mean, um, at one single time, you could do it several times. If you were having cash flow issues, or if you were transitioning from one job to the next, maybe moving, different things that come up in our life that take a good chunk of money. And we have the ability to possibly put off some of our bills, like the student loans, like in a forbearance situation, while we're making those transitions. Deferment is um, an allowance to stop making your payments on your principal and interest. Um, but it's kind of based off a specific situation. You can apply for deferment for many different reasons. There isn't necessarily a timeline on deferment, but you do have to apply. So unemployment or um, like that medical when you're hurt or something like that, like if you receive some medical like, leave, yeah, some medical leave or you're hurt or you disability. Payments. Yeah, disability. That's the word I was thinking of. Yeah. So like for um disability or if you're going back to school or let's say you're um, in the military and you're I was just going to say that. Yeah. Military relief. Active duty. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things. So the biggest thing to know is that forbearance isn't for all loans and it's a certain time period. You can only do it for up to 12 months, the entire length of the loan. You can't do it for 12 months in 2016 and then 12 months in 2020. That's just not how it works. But deferment, you can apply for at different times in your life. If you're right out of school, you do have six months before you have to start making payments. But let's talk about all the graduates that are graduating, you know, next month or this month, and they're going into one of the worst uh, job markets I read on Forbes the other day that has been happening since 2008. So they're not going to be required to make their payments for six months after they graduate. But they could also, if at that time they haven't been able to find employment or are still suffering from, you know, the current financial market, they can apply for deferment. Now it is an application. It doesn't mean that you'll get it and you'll have to prove that you need it. So you'll have to prove a mm. loss of income or certain things like that. Like one of uh, my friends, he had to get a letter that he had been furloughed. So he had to get proof mm. that he had been let go in order to get the deferment. Now that doesn't count right now. No one needs to do that um, unless you're your student loans don't fall under the CARES Act, you'll know because they'll continue to collect the money. And you can also just call and ask them. You most likely received an email if your student loan does fall in the CARES Act. A lot of people did. But the big thing is, is that if you need that time, you should use it and you should apply for it. But you do still accrue interest the entire time that it is in deferment. 
And that's something that's. And I have a question. I have a question about that, which is something that we run into all the time. You made a really good point that you should be receiving an email. So one of the things that we run into all the time is people forget. So they set these things up on deferment and then they forget. And then what happens? They go six months without making payments. Now they've got late payments with a student loan on their credit history and student loan late payments are very difficult to work with. So what would be your advice, Samantha? And, you know, we've talked about this as a team, but, you know, what would be your advice to our listeners out there? You know, when you set something up on deferment, forbearance, things of that nature, how do you remind yourself when it's time to start making payments and or when it's time to contact that particular lender again and redo the paperwork and make sure that you're not hurting your credit history. Because listen, this is a credit show. You know, we teach our clients that their credit is an investment tool to build wealth. And when we are not accountable and responsible to the deals that we're making, it can come and bite us in the butt. My biggest advice, because this happens so much with credit cards, with anything, people just forget about them. They forget that they use them. They do all of these things, right? So my biggest advice to remember your deferment is there's a couple of things you can do. As soon as you put in deferment, go into your phone calendar and set a reminder for yourself a month before the deferment ends. It's like you put your student loans in deferment. They're ending next month. If you monitor your credit through Experian, which is free, the Experian credit report will tell you the date that they're in deferment to. So if you do forget, if you don't write it down, you can take a look at your Experian credit report and it will say deferred until August 2020. And then you'll be able to contact your creditor. The third most single important thing that you can do is if you're moving, if you change your cell phone number, if you change your email, write it down to update all of your companies, even the ones that you're not actively engaging with, like if your student loans are in deferment, to always keep your contact information updated. Because what I will tell you is that they will call and they will send you a letter and they will email you and they will do everything that they can to get in contact with you. But if they don't have your updated contact information, even updating your information through um, the... FSA, which is Federal Student Aid website, having a contact login and updating your personal information through there, these companies will get a hold of you. But you have to do the due diligence in setting yourself reminders. And don't let it be out of sight, out of mind. If you are like me and you have monthly budgets and you create, you know, financial goals for yourself and you have your little Excel spreadsheet with all the stuff that you owe or, or Trello or whatever cool new things exist, whatever you have, make sure that you have a reminder in there that's like, hey, I have student loans. I have student loans in their deferment, but I need to make a plan to repay them. I need to start setting money aside. I need to start creating a way to start repaying them because you, they will follow you until you're dead. And I always tell clients that yeah, they, <laughs> they will. I was just telling Angela the other day that they will garnish your social security check if you have not paid your student loans. That is how long they'll follow you. 
Yeah, and they're and and they're federally regulated. So these are federal loans, guys. Now, private student loans, which we're not going to get into today, are are a complete different ball of wax. But the federal lo- loans are the federal government, and um, we know, just like Uncle Sam, they don't go away easy. And listen to your point, Samantha. I think it's important for our listeners to know and understand. Um, Samantha made a really good point by saying they're going to call you, they're going to email you, they're going to send you mail. And even if you say you didn't receive it and you ignore their calls and you don't speak to someone, it doesn't mean that they have not made a good sailor attempt to get in touch with you. And if they have the uh, proof that they have gotten, tried to get in touch with you. That's all that they need to prove that there's been due diligence to get in touch with you. So this is why it's very important to, like Samantha just explained, about having a plan. You know, maybe you even have a sticky note on your mirror when you're brushing your teeth every morning. Even if it's, you know, uh, for you have a forbearance for 12 months from now, you got that sticky note. And every time you're brushing your teeth, you're thinking about, you know what? I need to make a plan because my student loans are going to be due in 12 months. Uh, two months later, you're coming to brush your teeth. You still see that sticky note yeah. on the mirror. Oh, it's been two months. I better have a plan, you know? So keep it in front of you. That's, I think, Samantha's point. And I think that is well taken, Samantha. Thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. I think that the um, another another segue, good segue for us to go into is what you did mention, Angela, is the subsidized versus unsubsidized loan, because that has been something that I have learned and a couple of the girls who do work with us um, have learned and they have student loans is that it, it matters what type of um, you have. So subsidized pretty much means that you receive financial aid also in some way. So you financially qualify for a subsidized loan. And that means that while you're enrolled in school, the the government pays your interest. So you don't accrue any interest while you're in school. The government will pay that. That will be covered through your financial aid in a sense of money that you do not have to repay. So that's really important to know. So that's a subsidized loan. An unsubsidized loan means that you are accountable for all of the interest that is accrued through the loans while you're in school. Now that's probably going to be the parent loans. Anything that you might have received a co-signer for because the more money that you prove that you have, the less help that the government is going to give you. That's just unfortunately the reality. Yeah, they're very considerate uh, folks, but it's really important that um, whenever you are signing for the loan that you understand what type of loan that you have. And it's not really terrible to get an unsubsidized loan, but one of our clients, he's very wealthy and his son just started uh, school and he decided to get the loans because he said, I'll just pay him off in four years when he graduates. That's what they said that I can do, that he can just get these And they said, now wait, you know, sir, you have to really look at the loans because if they're these unsubsidized loans, which they're most likely are, if they're in your name, considering he has, you know, extensive assets and money, then they're probably unsubsidized and you would be better to be making large payments throughout the school year so that you do not have to pay a lot of interest by waiting four years, accruing all of that interest, and then starting to make payments then. It would be better for you to start making it now. And he was just mind blown. He was like, they didn't explain anything of that to us. They never told us that would be a possibility. I almost would have rather just paid for it 
cash outright. But now that he knows and he found out at the beginning of his son's first semester, he's better educated and able to work with his accountants and bookkeepers to start making those large payments so that when his son does graduate, if he wants the son to pay off the remainder of his schooling, he'll have a small portion versus the amount of money he's having to take out per semester, which I'm pretty sure his son was going to an Ivy League school that was about $80,000 a semester. Yeah, smart kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we hope. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really important. Um, You can, whenever you're sitting in the financial aid office or whenever you're applying for these loans, you can ask these questions before you sign anything. And you can ask what other options are available. Like Angela mentioned, there are private um, student loan companies that don't follow under the same the same um, background like Wells Fargo and SoFi, where you'll be able to get these student loans, um, especially if you're co-signing for your children at probably a better interest rate and something that might be more reasonable for a repayment plan. So don't just go to the financial aid and let them take out the first loan or the first lender that you find, because chances are it's not going to be the best loan because they're not thinking necessarily about you and your finances. And it's not because they're bad people. It's just because it doesn't affect them they're just doing their job so you have to do your job and cover your own butt and read the paperwork before you sign it absolutely Absolutely. yes hundred percent i love that and you know like we said cover your brute make sure you read the fine print we've had we've had conversations about that reading the fine print and why it's so important and don't be afraid like samantha said to ask questions i think people feel intimidated sometimes by what they don't know and if you don't ask before you assign on the dotted line that's a that's a big no no big big no no so let's go to the next thing samantha i think we're on a roll here let's talk about consolidation versus refinancing now a lot of clients come to us um like the one that you talked about that went to school later and um you know they have a good job and now they'd like to take all of the student loans that they've that they've accumulated and refinance them with a third party company that may offer a more competitive rate and or um you have clients that want to take all of their loans that they have and consolidate them with one lender now um Explain to us the difference between consolidation and refinance as far as the research that you've done. Well, I believe that clients only want to do loan consolidation because it's all that they know and have access to, meaning that they don't know about refinances through third parties. All consolidation does is take the five student loans that you took out through the alpha years that you were there and make them into one simple payment. So it doesn't change the terms of the loan. It doesn't do any of that. It just takes it into a new loan and it takes an average of your interest rate. So let's say that you had a 9% interest rate or a 4% interest, um, not a 4%, that's really low, great. Um, Like a 14% interest rate on one and you had all these variable interest rates, it will take an average of those interest rates and that will be applied to the new loan. So you could still get stuck with like a nine or 10% interest rate like a lot of people do. And that's a lot, it sounds low, but trust me, it is not. It is really high and it will really 
accrue more money that you owe throughout the time. So consolidation, all it is is about convenience. I would recommend consolidation maybe if your credit isn't in the best situation. Um, you know, let's say you have some things maybe that have hurt you throughout the past and your credit score isn't that great or maybe your income isn't that great. Um, I would definitely recommend a recommend consolidation because you don't have to meet a credit score or an income um, threshold. So that won't really affect that. That's something that they'll do for you more as a convenience to you in order to make one monthly payment. But that is all that it is. It's just a convenience to you. It is not it's not the best option. The best option is, is to refinance your loan. So refinancing your loan is just like your student loan is just like refinancing your car or your home loan. You have to have good credit and you have to have um, like home loans. You have to, what is that? Verify your income. You have to really have a good yeah. debt to income ratio in order to get a, a third party to buy it like SoFi or Wells Fargo in order to buy that debt and get an interest rate around four to 6%. You really have to have over about a 740 credit score to get in that four to 6% range, which is actually what we've been reading and hearing from the student loan companies, one of the best rates that you can have for a student loan. Now, depending on how good your credit is, maybe you do have a co-signer who has you know, a 780 or an 800, I'm sure you probably could get a lower interest rate um, on the loans, but everything that I've been reading and hearing whenever we're making calls is that four to six percent is the optimal range um, for student loans. Mm -hmm. And for, that's really good. Yeah, that's I mean, I think we just did a refi for a client and it took some grit and it took some doing, but we were able to pull it through for them. And he was able to get a 4% interest rate, I believe, right, Angela? He was able to get a 4% interest yeah. rate on his new loans. So the refi, yes. um, it will consolidate all of them, but it will also give you a lower interest rate and a payment that might help overall, you. More overall lower interest rate overall. Because when you're consolidating high interest loans into one loan, you're going to have a larger payment because you're going to be paying more interest versus if you're refinancing them all into a single payment and then you have a lower interest rate, you might have a better payment that's more effective in actually paying off the debt and then something that's more manageable as well. Yeah, well, not might, you will. Yes, you, you definitely, definitely will have it. Yeah, you definitely will. Um, and to your point, you know, the thing is, is that when you are doing the refinance, like you said, there's a whole qualification process. So you have to have two years of tax returns. You have to have two years of uh, W-2s to prove your income. You know, there is a process that you have to go through. But again, uh, like I said, to your point, it is the better option to take from a financial standpoint of view in how much money at the end of the day you're going to be shelling out on these student loans it comes to interest. It's definitely the better end-all be-all option as well. So I want to use that as a segue into let's talk about the clients who are in collections or in default because that's where a lot of people yeah. do unfortunately end up. And to be honest with you, I'll be upfront, being in collections in default is a great place to start. It's technically rock bottom <laughs> and you have so many options to get out that you don't even know. So what you can do one time 
only, so you can't default on it, is a rehabilitation program. A rehabilitation program is essentially a nine-month payment program where you can make an income qualifying payment. So you answer their questionnaire about how much money you make. They do you the courtesy of asking how much money you pay. So, you know, how many kids you got, how much food you buy, gas, things like that. They take into consideration your living expenses and they'll base your monthly payment for that rehab for nine months, you make nine months, nine um, on-time monthly payments, and then someone else, a different creditor, will buy the loans, take them off, and then get this. All the negative information will be removed from your credit. Just like that. What? Yeah. Love it. Doesn't always happen seamlessly, so make sure that you're always monitoring your credit, but it should happen yeah, really happen seamlessly. seamlessly without the without some muscle in the background like us. Exactly. <laughs> we just had a client um, yesterday. As a matter of fact, we've been working with him for nine months and we were just trying so hard. He had about, unfortunately, 26 uh, derogatory student loans and he is very successful. So he just got into a situation um, and it kind of got to be too much for him. And he just put his head in the sand, put it out of sight, out of mind, and just buried himself in his work. And then found out that, you know, 10 years later, they were still due. So he did, he followed our instructions. He, we rehabilitated the loans for him. And then he just went from 26 derogatory accounts on his credit to two. And his credit score went up 150 points. And he was almost in tears yesterday. And now he has actually sold um, some things like a lot of people are doing liquidating their assets right now. And he wants to take this time where there's those student loans that are now bought by these new creditors aren't accruing any additional interest. And he wants to start making large payments like $10,000, $20,000 payments on these loans in order so that when they do start accruing interest in you know October 1st, it'll be a lesser amount of money that he owes and he'll be able to effectively pay it off with payments over the next couple of years. So he just kind of, he got into a lucky situation, I guess you could say, with COVID-19, and he got in, in his rehab ended, and now his credit so much better. But the great thing would be is, like, let's say that he didn't have all this money, right? So he doesn't have all this money. All of his student loans are rehabbed. His credit score is up to 730. He's feeling great. What is his next option to get lower student loan payments and a better interest rate? refinance almost immediately. You've mm. just cleaned up your credit. You've, you know, done the nine months in the nine months, you That's know, timing. yeah, reduce your credit card debt, do those things, optimize your credit score, build a nine month program to really be when you come out of that nine months, your credit score is going to be over 700. You're going to be an optimum financing and now refinance those loans. Get yourself that lower interest rate and get yourself a better loan. Apply for a third party to buy it so that you have a good loan with a good repayment and structure and then just really start uh, you know, attacking them, getting them down, doing what's best for you as far as financially and getting that hump off your back once and for all. Yeah, those big bricks, huh? <laughs> Man, I mean, those are the stories that I love to hear because we, you know, um, and I'm not, uh, I, I'm not being too crass to say that that we hear these stories a lot, you know, where people are just put in a completely different situation once their credit is back on top. Because, you know, what we've learned is that unfortunately, without having a good credit score in the US, it's really hard to do much, right? It's hard to do anything. <laughs> it is hard. To, <laughs> it is hard to, 
you know, I think it's just hard to feel comfortable. It's just like this, this, that's thorn in your side all the time that just makes you feel like a bad person. Like I've had people say, Oh my gosh, I'm going to send you my credit report, but I'm not going to look at it because I just don't need to go there today. <laughs> and you're like, that's fine. We'll, <laughs> we'll handle it. We'll get it in the right position. But people are just afraid to even look at it because it makes them feel low. It makes them feel like they're not successful, like that they're stupid or uneducated. And the reality is, is that that, that your credit score doesn't mean anything about you, but the higher your credit mm -hmm. score is, the more you can do, the better you'll feel and the more that you'll be able to, like think about everybody in this crisis right now. I'm so grateful that at this point that I not only you know have a job, but I also have reserves to fall back on as far as credit goes. I'm not you know a huge uh, saver, that's a problem that I'm uh, working through, but um, I do have credit cards that I don't use often mm -hmm. you know i just use for points sometimes if i'm flying or things like that but i have these credit cards from when i worked started working at ccmi and i got my first secured credit card i felt so good about myself and then i always tell a story about how i thought i was going to go out and apply for a southwest card and then i had a southwest card and i was like they denied me and i felt so bad about myself i was like i have terrible credit what was i thinking like i'll never be able to get this card and now i just got approved for it a couple years ago and now I feel great, but I have all these credit cards <laughs> with all with with these of uh, this available credit essentially to fall back on. And I think that and amazing rewards and things like that. I mean, it's it, it goes so far when you have good credit because you know what we know um, working in the field that we're working in is that you know credit goes beyond just credit cards and credit. Like it's mm -hmm. going into insurance industries. It's going into opening bank accounts. You know, the algorithm of FICO is being used for so, so much. So much. And, you know, and it's great, you know, because you have to have a way to assess risk. You know, as someone who wants to own renter properties, I'm grateful for the credit system because it will give me an idea of this person's payment history. But also as someone who's Absolutely. worked in in this industry, I also don't believe that someone is defined by a number because someone could have perfect yes. credit for 20 years and miss one $15 minimum payment on a credit card that they didn't know had an annual fee to, you know, their favorite what glam box or something like that and then nice. they missed the payment and then now they have a five you know 550 and that doesn't mean anything that just means that they're human so i think that as great as it is there's some kinks to work out but it's just so important to to get yourself there to just by any means absolutely means Absolutely. Well, we covered a ton in this show about student loans. And I think that we will come back and we will recap once again, some things that maybe we didn't get to go over in this show. But I think friends and fans out there, you heard it here first from Samantha Headley and Angela setters Bassard, A to the N to the G. You're listening to Your Credit Today. We're talking about student loans today. One of the most important things that is happening out there right now we're going to come back and talk more about student loans and what you need to know. So make sure that you have your pen and paper ready or you have subscribed to this show because what do I always tell you to do? If you have not hit that subscribe button, hit that subscribe button right now. Tell all your friends and family about the amazing tips and education that you're learning from this voice here, A to the N to the G. I want to thank you for coming to this show today. 
This is Samantha and Angela, and we're out.